The Bins Towards Justice podcast series is a partnership between Duquesne University and the August Wilson African American Cultural Center. The series is made possible by a grant from the Pittsburgh Foundation and hosted by Bruce Ledowitz, Professor of Law at the Duquesne University School of Law. My guest on this podcast is Christian Miller, the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University, best known as the director of The Character Project and author of the popular book The Character Gap, How Good Are We?, and currently the director of The Beacon Project, which we may have a chance to talk about. Christian presents a more personal view of the justice that Dr. King speaks of in his teaching that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Maybe we will conclude that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice in part because it bends toward better character. Christian, welcome to the Ben's Tour Justice podcast series. Thank you so much for having me on. And I'm, I just want to say thank you to Wake Forest University. We're here in this uh, lovely, lovely room, and uh, so I appreciate their and your uh, willingness to host us. Thank you for coming all this way. It's a real honor. Well, uh, why don't we start with uh, your own work, of course, which is uh, character and the character gap and, and why that's important. Sure. So I've been working on character for about 10 years now as part of my research And as a philosopher, I think it's really important to start by getting clear on our terms, what we mean. Sometimes people talk about characters if they're talking about drama productions or characters in movies. That's not what I'm primarily interested in. I'm focusing on the topic of moral character. What makes us who we are, morally speaking, our moral fiber. It's what leads us to think, feel, and act in morally relevant ways. So it comes primarily in two varieties, this idea of moral character. On the one hand, there are the moral virtues, things like honesty, compassion, courage, and temperance. On the other hand, there are the moral vices, the reverse, the, in, the, the flipping around of the, of the virtues, things like dishonesty, cowardice, and cruelty. So we can think of the broad notion of character in the form of virtue and also in the form of vice. Obviously, one is better than the other. We want to cultivate the virtues and we want to get rid of, as much as we can, the vices as part of our character. But they're really, they're really important, uh, because if you're a virtuous person, that means you have a psychology that's going to lead you to act in a certain way as a result of thinking certain things. So that's my abstract way to put it, but let's make it real concrete. So an, an honest person, as part of their character, they're going to act in honest ways as a result of having this trait of honesty, which leads them to think about the importance of telling the truth and to care about and be motivated by the truth, which then in turn gives rise to not cheating, not lying, not stealing, and so forth. So character is, uh, is, is primarily a matter of virtue and vice, and it's also really important. Now, Dr. King was very interested in, in character, and, uh, and you and I had an email exchange about that. Um, he said that education was about in, intelligence and character. And, and, of course, he had that, that famous quote from the um, Washington speech, I Have a Dream speech, about judging people by the quality of their character and not by the color of their skin. That's right. So I should say I'm not an expert on Dr. King's works. I, I should know them better than I do. Uh, but from what I've read, it seems like the theme of character is just pervasive in his writing and in his thinking, that he was hoping to bring about a fundamental character change 
in society in such a way that American society would better reflect the ideals around which it was founded in the first place. Ideals of character represented, for example, in the Declaration and in the Constitution, also ideals of character that for him were religiously informed because it was he tied character so closely to his own personal religious beliefs. So uh, big themes that come out in his writings are things like the importance of having faith, never giving up on hope, never giving it into despair, but always having hope that in the future, in the long run, things will work out better. The importance of compassion, especially for those who are uh, vulnerable and who are, have not had the advantages that others have. The, the importance of courage, for standing up for what's right and not backing down in an act of cowardice. These are all character concepts, faith, courage, compassion, and hope. So I, I see uh, Dr. King as someone who's very much working within the, the tradition of caring about character. Now, you, in, in particular, you mentioned hope, and um, hope, I, I take it, is easier to have if you think the universe is on your side in the long run. It, I think that's, that's true, and uh, I think that's also something that Dr. King and I share as fundamental beliefs. So if we come back to the main idea of your, your podcast and this famous line about the arc of the universe bending towards justice, that's a really uh, profound notion. And when I try and unpack that and keep in mind the idea of hope, the only way I can really make sense of that is in a longer-term perspective with some kind of governing uh, entity or being overseeing the process. Or, or structure, as you sometimes Structure, say. right. That's right. Uh, so if we think of the, the, um, of the arc of the universe bending towards justice in a secular mindset, uh, I think that, that it could happen that way, but it could not in the long run. That's more of a contingent matter. Maybe events will unfold in that direction, but maybe events will unfold differently. Uh, you know, to use a, an example that philosophers sometimes talk about, uh, it's, you know, the, uh, the Nazis lost World War II, but events could have gone differently, and the Nazis could have won World War II. And the universe would look very, very different. And there's no kind of guarantee one way or the other that events will unfold towards justice. But if we take a more supernatural perspective or more transcendent perspective, then we think about this quote that way, uh, the universe bending towards justice. Well, there's no guarantee even then that events will unfold in this life right. if the supernatural being is hands-off or the transcendent being is not involved. So it's kind of leading, leaving things up to us to sort out. Uh, actually, Dr. King's quote was uh, derived from a Methodist minister in the 1800s named Parker. Right. And the way he, Parker. He, right. he, the way he understood that quote seemed to me to be a matter of trying to inspire people to use their free will to change society towards justice as opposed to relying on a divine being to guarantee that our society will be a just society in the long run. However, uh, there is this, that in a more supernaturalist perspective, there's this life, and then there's the life to come, the next life. 
it doesn't make much sense in a, in a more naturalist or secular perspective, but it makes sense in a, in a more supernaturalist perspective. And there, I can get my mind around the idea that ultimately justice will be served. That if it's not ultimately served in this life, it will ultimately be served in the next life. So another uh, quote from Dr. King that I find very moving and I think is, is helpful along these lines is this. Unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. So truth, love, and justice will all prevail eventually, if not in this life, then in the next life. And that, uh, that I can get behind and make, make sense to me. Of course, and now um, in the particular context in which Dr. King was speaking um, in the 60s when he was using this quote on numerous occasions, he, he probably wasn't thinking primarily in a supernatural sense at that, at that point. He was trying to inspire uh, people who were working actively in the uh, civil rights movement mm -hmm. that they were going to prevail in, in a... Now, it's true, I, I think that um, he, he would have said not everyone will see it, you know, um, but you can, work, you can work toward a better world if you think it's coming, even if it won't benefit you in particular. You know, I'm thinking of the children of Israel and Egypt, uh, prisoners, uh, slaves for 400 years before God intervenes, Obviously, many, many, many died in slavery, but that didn't mean the hope died. Right, that's right. So uh, I think there, this quote, you can take it in two different directions. Uh, there's a danger associated with the quote, which is that uh, it's not a matter of human agency. It's going to be a matter of some kind of higher structure or power, which is going to do the bending of the universe for us. And so we kind of can sit back and just trust that the universe will go in this its direction. If that's what's meant, that's, I think, a, a problematic view. If, on the other hand, what's really meant as we unpack this quote is that uh, we are supposed to be inspired towards trying to bend the universe through our own efforts towards justice. That would also be very much in line with Parker's original intention in the 1830s, uh, and I think makes makes perfect sense. It also makes a lot of sense that uh, you may not see the fruit of those labors in this lifetime. Uh, that you may work really hard towards justice and find some obstacles. You might, might get discouraged, and you may not see the the, the good consequences that come from your actions uh, in this lifetime or in the next lifetime. Uh, uh, you may not see the good fruit of your actions in this lifetime, but subsequent generations can see those good fruits, we hope. Right, and like a good Marxist, you, you, could, you could work toward that, that ultimate victory of the working class. So, but the, the question that I come back to is, is it inevitable that the universe will bend towards justice? Uh, if it's just a matter of us and our own devices, working towards justice, will in the long run justice prevail? And I'm not convinced that that necessarily will happen. It seems to me a lot of contingent events can derail the progress we make. And we make, we make some progress and we have some setbacks. We make some progress, we have some setbacks. There's no linear path, as far as I can see, left to our own devices, left to human initiative, towards a perfect society, 
or perfect justice or the instantiation of the virtue of justice amongst all human beings. It may happen that way or may not. I hope it will. Uh, you know, certainly I'm working towards it myself, but uh, if we're just working with the human secular perspective, I don't think there's any guarantee it will. Oh, and I'm sure that, you know, Dr. King would have said there's no guarantee since it's only a bend. Um, on the other hand, one of your favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, also um, said somewhere that um, uh, gi given the kind of um, creatures that we are and the kind of thing the universe is, um, it, it may be that the uh, virtues will inevitably triumph because we're, we are ourselves shaped in that direction in some sense. But of course, w that brings us back to character. And it does. So let me expand a little bit about, about how I see character these days and then why I'm not so sure that virtue is guaranteed in the long run. Uh, again, left to our own devices. So when I think about how our character actually looks these days, as opposed to how it should look, we have the normative that tells us what character should look like. That's what philosophers can talk about, theologians can talk about. We also have the empirical or the descriptive, what character actually looks like today. How are we doing? And for that kind of question, I turn not to philosophy, but I turn to psychology. And I read a whole bunch of studies that put participants into different situations and see what they end up doing. So situations where they have the opportunity to cheat, to steal, to lie, uh, to harm, to not help. And what I find is that condensing hundreds and hundreds of studies into the kind of observations I've made uh, having read those studies, is that our character is very much a mixed bag. I don't see a lot of evidence of virtue being widespread amongst the population. Uh, now, could that change in the future? Yes, it could. I don't see any inevitability of it changing in that direction. But right now, what I see in light of the psychological research that's been going on for the last 50 years is that I, we have what I call a mixed character. Yeah, uh, no, uh, let me ask, yeah. do you think this is fixed, um, fixed human nature to be like this, or do you think that a whole culture can, can change and have a, a better or a worse character in, yeah. uh, in general terms? Yeah, great, great. Um, so it's not fixed, uh, uh, and I'm not just pontificating there or uh, hoping that it's not fixed. There's actually good empirical evidence that's not fixed. So character is, is not fixed. We see this at the individual level. An individual person's character changes over time. Uh, we see this at the population level, that a, a population's character can change over time. And we see this even at a, at a longer uh, generational level or uh, you know, a longer-term perspective. So, and how, how is America doing, do you think? Yeah, um, it's easy to go right to the quick um, news points or attention-grabbing headlines and say America's not doing very well. Uh, that would be all that reference to the post-truth moment and all that stuff. Right, right, right. Thing, things like that. Uh, or just some big uh, story that grabs our attention. I want to be more careful and go slower. I want to think, what do controlled studies of individuals tell us about character? And then also character change over time. And the studies done by psychologists tend to use Americans as their participants. So it's, it, it's helpful. If you had asked me and said, how are people in Russia doing or Japan or Korea or something, I would not, not have as much evidence to go on. But it's usually Americans that we're, we're thinking about here. 
And the conclusion I draw is that uh, some of the studies find quite admirable tendencies amongst participants. And some of the studies find quite disappointing tendencies amongst participants. So maybe I can give an example of each to, to illustrate. And then we can also talk about change over time as well. So uh, on the more admirable front, there are studies which find that American, and I think this would be true beyond Americans, but the, again, the most uh, the participants are Americans, are quite inclined to help others when they feel empathy for the suffering of those in need. So when you're empathizing with someone else who's suffering, that means you take their perspective, try to think about the world from their uh, vantage point, and then also try and feel what they're feeling as well. Understand the world from, from their eyes and feel what they're feeling. Overwhelmingly, people are very likely to turn around and help even, uh, alleviate that suffering, even if this is a person who's a complete stranger to them. Furthermore, there's good empirical evidence that they're motivated to help alleviate that suffering for altruistic, not egoistic reasons. So that the motivation is selfless as opposed to being self-centered. That's really admirable, very compelling. On the flip side, so that's, that's the, some example of the positive. On the flip side, you see things like this. Uh, when there's an emergency going on and there are a group of people around, any one of whom could come to the assistance of the person who's having a heart attack or has broken a leg or whatever the emergency might be, often no one comes to the assistance of that person in need. Why? Because they're in a group. To really get at that, you would need longitudinal research. Uh, and that could take one of two forms. You could either track uh, a given cluster of people as they aged. You start at age 20, look at them at 30, 40, 50, 60. And so during their lifespan, did their character change? Or you can do it cross-sectional. So you could look at you know, a group of people in the 1960s and give them some kind of measure of character and then take another group of people in the 70s, 80s, 90s, etc., and see on the same measure of character, is there some change at work? The problem is that we don't have either of these. Uh, we don't have uh, the kind of studies that I would really hope to see, to use, to make assessments of change over time in American character. We have some preliminary data, but I just want to flag that I'm, I want to be careful and hesitant about what uh, implications to draw. The data I've seen show a couple trends. Uh, one is an increased trend towards narcissism and self-centeredness and self-aggrandizement. Uh, the time frame I'm thinking of here is roughly the 1970s, 80s to the present. Mm -hmm. uh, on the uh, flip side, I see a decrease in empathy. I see there's some empirical evidence that during the same time period, empathy is declining. So narcissism is increasing, empathy is declining. They're probably not independent. They're probably related to each other, right? Uh, the more empathy, the less uh, narcissism you would expect to find. So my, again, cautious observation is that there does seem to be some movements towards character decline in America in the last, say, about 40 to 50 years. Yeah, that, and, and there's a lot of anecdotal reason to, to think that, too. What, 
if it's the case, and, and again, you, you're not certain it is the case, mm-hmm. but if it is the case, do, do you attribute that to any particular factors or what might account for it? Yeah, so again, I want to be cautious here. I'm, I'm a philosopher, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, so what I say um, should be very much, uh, uh, you know, integrated with discussions from other perspectives as well. One piece of it, I think, undoubtedly is going to be the rise of technology, uh, most recently social media, but that wouldn't account for 50, a 50-year 50 trend. But I think it's uh, uh, in the last 10 years is exacerbating some of these, these trends. Uh, but broader t- uh, technological use with, um, with, with computers, for example, would be one piece of the puzzle. Uh, I think there might also be uh, trends towards uh, increase uh, fragmentation of communities and uh, the, uh, the, the, the inc- rise in loneliness, uh, rise in kind of individuals living their own lifestyles apart from a community and how having some of the deep attachments that they, they might have existed in the past. So those are two answers, I, I would say, technology and an erosion of community, but again, take it for what's worth as a philosopher. No, I understand. And um, do you think that uh, capitalism itself, uh, with its emphasis on the individual, might might play a factor too? Uh, as, as well as, I guess, I should have said the decline of, of religion in America. Th- that those are two other factors. Uh, I'm I'm hesitant on the capitalism because that's really outside of my area of, of competence. Uh, I'm not a, an economist. I will say, um, and, and furthermore, you know, capitalistic society has been in place for a lot longer than 50 years, so was there some specific change in the last 50 years that would be uh, at work here in the causal explanation? Uh, I, I'm happy to talk just in the abstract about self-interest and you know, economic matters and, and whether we always do pursue our self-interest and whether we always should pursue our self-interest. So that, that's something I feel very... Uh, comfortable talking about. On the religion side of things, uh, I am, uh, again, um, not a sociologist of religion, but I have read quite a fair amount in the empirical literature on religion, and there could be something to that as well. So there could be some uh, causal relationship between the decline of uh, organized religion and some of the worrying signs I see about culture, now, about character. That's a very serious um, observation because yeah. the decline of religions is, is very dramatic mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and does not appear to be reversible soon. So if it's having a, a bad impact, uh, that bad impact is going to continue. It, it, that, so let me um, qualify what I said. Uh, the studies I've read are correlational studies. And as we all know, correlation does not equal causation. So I think we need to be very careful when we're making broad generalizations like this. Uh, so we can say, you know, hypothetically, if it were the case that the decline of religion is also traced to some declines in character, uh, then uh, it does not look like uh, there's going to be a resurgence of um, religiosity in America anytime soon. Now, a lot of your work requires a, a consensus about uh, what, what uh, virtues are and what vices are, and you purposely, in fact, uh, choose the, the non-controversial aspects. 
Um, is, it, is it a problem that um, it, when we get into more uh, difficult terrain, this, this culture, um, and I think I sent you the, the quote from Justice Scalia of all people, uh, Justice Anthony Scalia in a, in, in a case, the gun control case, uh, McDonald, in which he says, you can't say anything objective about a flourishing human life, um, which to me was, was a horrible thing for, for a Supreme Court justice to say, but I thought, I thought it reflected pretty well the state that we're in right now. So what, what, how do you address this kind of moral relativism, I think you've called it? Right. So there are lots of questions here, and I think we want to go slowly and maybe tease them apart. There's the general question about morality. Where does morality come from? What is the source of morality? What is the foundation of morality? And then there are more specific questions about character. But character is only one part or component of a larger thing we call morality. So let's start big picture and then go narrower. Big picture of morality. There are two broad perspectives here. One is to say that morality is objective. What does that mean? It means that there's a, a, a moral code or a system of morality that exists independent of human beings that we did not create and which we do not have control over. So to make it a little bit more tangible, uh, perhaps part of that code says slavery is wrong, and that's something that's always been objectively wrong, not something we created, said was wrong, uh, not something we can change. That's just the way the moral law is. Where could this objective morality come from? There are uh, two options here. One is to say a divine being put it in place, a supernatural being. Another option is to say it just exists. It's a, kind of a natural law, a part of the universe, just like the scientific laws are part of the universe. So that's the objective way of thinking about morality. Again, there's a, a fundamental moral law that governs our world, either put in place by God or which just exists on its own. In opposition to that way of thinking is what we might call a relativist mindset. This says that morality is the product of individuals. Maybe each individual has his or her own moral code, and there's no higher authority than that. Or a cultural relativist would say each culture has its own moral code, and there's no higher authority. But the fundamental idea here is that we human beings are the authors of morality. We are the sources of morality, and we can change it as we so choose. So if we are thinking at the individual level, you have your moral code, I have my moral code, where our moral codes are different, they're just different. There's no further source to adjudicate between them and say, this one's right and this one's wrong. <clears throat> they're valid just for ourselves. My moral code is good for me, your moral code is good for you, that's the end of the story. Now, what should we say about this? And then we'll transition to character more specifically. Well, this is obviously a very controversial matter. Uh, amongst philosophers, I side with the majority of philosophers in thinking that there's an objective morality. Uh, I find it very hard to accept that any moral code is equally valid to any other moral code. So that the Nazi... Uh, morality is equally valid to my morality, or the slave morality is equally valid to the morality that dominates our society today. No, I, I, I think that's just uh, extremely 
hard to accept. So I think that there are some moral truths uh, and some moral falsities and even if people don't recognize those moral truths, they still exist. One of them is slavery is wrong. Another is that what the Nazis did to the Jews is wrong. So that's, you know, in, in five minutes, the, the background for, for the general question about morality. Now, when we turn to character specifically, there are these kind of questions as well. What are the virtues and what are the vices? Uh, is there a fixed list of the virtues, objective list, or is it just a matter of opinion? Here too, not surprisingly, since I think there's an objective morality in general, I'm going to think that there's an objective morality when it comes to virtues and vices and character. Although it may manifest differently in certain situations. Hey, absolutely. So uh, let's, let's take, I think, a relatively uncontroversial example. I think honesty is a virtue. If someone said, no, honesty is a vice. Well, we're going to disagree with about that, but I'm well, going to think we that, don't know whether we believe them. Right? Well, yeah, right. We might not believe them in the first place. Uh, but if they really are serious about that, then I'm going to say, look, we have a disagreement, but I think you're you're mistaken about that. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that the virtues will manifest, as you rightly said, the same way in all circumstances. What do I mean by that? Uh, well. It may be that a virtuous person in some circumstances might actually tell a lie. <clears throat> so it, virtue and character is very much uh, context-specific. You have to think about, in a given context, what are the most important values and considerations and weigh them up and come to the objective answer in that particular cir circumstance. So make that that's very abstract, make it more concrete. Uh, take the famous example of the Nazis at the door. So if you're you know, in World War II, you're uh, hiding some Jews in your basement. The Nazis are doing a routine patrol of the neighborhood. They're going door to door, just knocking. Do you know where any Jews are? Do you know where any Jews are? Do you know where any Jews are? They come to your door. They knock. You open the door. The, the, the guard says, the soldier says, uh, do you know where any Jews are? You know that if you just lie, the person will leave and go to the next house. You know that if you tell the truth, the person's going to come in, probably arrest you, take all the Jews from the basement, and send them off to a concentration camp. In this kind of situation, you're, if you're a virtuous person, I think what you have to do is weigh the different considerations. There's considerations involving telling the truth. That's important. But there are also considerations involving the lives of innocent people. That's important, too. So in this case, considerations of compassion outweigh considerations of honesty. And so all things considered, the virtuous thing to do, objectively speaking, not relative, objectively speaking, is to lie to the Nazi soldier, thereby protecting the, uh, the Jews in the basement. Now, what I want to say from that, that lying is always okay? No. But it's how it manifests, what virtue is and how it manifests, really depends upon the complexities of the situation you happen to be in. Now, if, if C.S. Lewis is right, that the universe is a certain kind of thing, and we're a certain kind of thing, it, it might be that uh, virtues and, and, and vices would have consequences. And those consequences might help to show how objectively valid they are. So, for example, it might be that a slave society is, is really destined to fall, in some long-term sense, or destined not to be as resilient, or destined not to be as 
as, as happy and fulfilling because it is a slave society. And we found that the slave owners themselves had problems with slavery. Right. Even though their self-interest overrode that for a long time, mm -hmm. they weren't uh, ignorant of, of, the, of the likely immorality of their conduct. Right. So that, that's, that seems right to me, that uh, character traits definitely have consequences for the individual and for the society at large. And you can use those consequences to help assess whether a given character trait is a virtue or a vice, or a given action is moral or immoral. That, that seems right. I think we have to be very careful how we proceed, though, because there, as you're nicely brought out, there are consequences for the individual and there are consequences for the larger society. And those two might come apart. So I would not want to measure things just in terms of what happens to the individual uh, in, in assessing whether an action is moral or immoral or a, virtu a character trait is virtuous or vicious. I would want to look to a broader perspective uh, what's happening to the society or to the population at large. Well, coming back to Dr. King's observation that the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends toward justice, that might make sense from the point of view of these consequences. That is, if it's really hard to run a, a genuinely unjust society, and it's very hard to live a genuinely vice-filled life in a happy way, it, it, it might be that, that this would come out in the long run in, in the bending of the moral universe. Good, good. That, that, that seems right to me. Uh, so we have, I think we're going to have something like a continuum here. Uh, seems right to me that really vicious societies are going to undermine themselves and will not survive in the long run. Um, what I worry about, though, is what about societies that are somewhere in the middle? Which is yeah. most societies. Which is most societies, right. Um, you know, arguably our society right now in America. Uh, what's going to happen there? Um, it's not that character is so bad that the society is necessarily going to destroy, destroy itself, undermine itself in the long run, but it's clearly also not so virtuous either. And in that kind of context, uh, is there going to be some inevitable bending towards justice or could there just as easily be some bending towards injustice without going all the way towards you know, self-destruction? Uh, I worry there that uh, are we guaranteed to bend towards justice in the long run if we're starting, if our starting point is not the uh, self-destructive society, but the mediocre society? I don't know about that. And the same thing would be true of uh, the individual, since in, in your research, most of us are mediocre in terms of our character, too. Yes, right. So one of the reasons why I wrote this book was to diagnose how I see our character actually being. But another reason why I wrote this book, The Character Gap, was to hopefully inspire and equip people to bend their individual character more towards virtue. Because just having a, what I call, mixed character by itself doesn't automatically guarantee a bend towards virtue or bend towards vice. You could have a mixed character and go through in the next 10 or 20 years a series of actions that lead to having a vicious character. That's my, my way of thinking that's perfectly possible. What I'm hoping to do is to inspire people to go in the other direction. So I talk at some length in, in one chapter about reasons why, even if we have a mediocre or mixed character, 
we shouldn't be satisfied by that, but should want to be better. There are all kinds of reasons to care about developing a virtuous character and not settling for a mixed character. And then towards the end of the book, in three chapters, I talk about actual steps or tools that we can try to employ to help us along that path. Because it's one thing to be told, oh, you have a mixed character, and oh, it's really good to have a virtuous character, but, you know, good luck. Uh, good luck get, bridging what I call the character gap, the gap between the virtuous character you should have and the character you actually have. You know, th there's this gap. See you later. I don't want to stop there. I want to say, no, there are actually some concrete steps, tangible steps we can take to try and bridge that gap and have our characters better reflect the character we should have. Now, what about um, education of the young? We, we have a big problem in America. We, we have to be secular in our public school mm -hmm. education, for example. Um, and uh, talk about virtue and vice sounds religious to a lot of people. Um, if fewer kids are going to uh, church or synagogue or even mosques, mosques or any other religious tradition, um, what, what can secular society do in terms of educating the young that might have a good effect on character down the road? Right, so uh, in my mind, I think we can preserve the concepts of character and virtue independent from a religious background and still use them very fruitfully in educating people in general, uh, adults and children. I don't see that the concept of character has necessarily entwined in it any religious assumptions, nor virtue, nor vice, even if historically there might have been those associations. And if we don't feel comfortable using that language, we could even put that language aside and just focus on particular character strengths or particular traits. For example, we could talk about the importance of honesty. Well, is that so controversial that we really think it's important to raise our children to be honest? Well, in this particular moment, it would be a red state, blue state thing because of the, all the criticism of, of uh, President Trump. Well... I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I could outline a perspective that would be appealing to everyone here. So uh, I'm hoping to bridge those divides. Uh, uh, and we can certainly talk about that too. Um, so I'm thinking you know, something like honesty, justice. You know, red state, blue state, we care about justice. Uh, compassion, right? Um, Self-control. So these are courage, bravery, heroism. These are qualities and traits and values, whatever language you want to surround them with, that I think are widely held and celebrated. And I don't see why, whether it's public school, private school, whether it's red state, blue state, why we can't have some intentional effort directed at trying to explain what they mean, talk about why they're important, and actually foster them. How might we do that? Again, in a, in a secular context, and hopefully a political context here, if there is such a thing. Uh, well, in, in, the, in the book, I talk about a couple of strategies. Uh, one that I'll just highlight right here is by using some exemplars, uh, some examples, some role models of what these character traits might look like. So in the case of honesty, for example, when we're thinking about who, how would we foster honesty in children or in adults, we might present to a child an exemplar of honesty, a role model for that child to emulate, to learn, first learn more about, 
to come to admire, and then hopefully, ultimately, to emulate his or her character after. And actually, you've even suggested that uh, our religious institution should be doing the same thing. That's right. Um, so I, I don't think uh, uh, you know religious institutions are immune from this. They have lots of problems at the moment, as they've had throughout the past. They need to be working on themselves in fostering their character. And when they're also focused on their you know, children who are religious and so forth, trying to bring up children to emulate uh, and, and admire people of virtue. So what would be the example of this? You know, it could be someone like Abraham Lincoln. It could be someone like Harry Tubman. Or appropriately enough, it could be someone like Martin Luther King. Right. Uh, a great exemplar of virtues. And I think as he would be very comfortable talking about virtue, uh, he might not be comfortable talking about himself as an exemplar of virtue, that humility would probably... Uh, you know, prevent him from saying that. But we can look to him as an exemplar of virtues like courage. I mean, extremely uh, uh, admirable when it comes to courage or compassion or justice and so forth. Right, dedicating his life to others. Right, that's right, self-sacrifice. Uh, so now with all kinds of care and qualification in the process, these exemplars, none of them are perfect. They they have, uh, you know, to some extent are a mixed bag themselves. Uh, they might be really good on some virtues. They might have some other areas of the character which need some, you know, some help. Uh, there, so we have to be, you know, careful what we're looking at and picking out certain specific aspects of character and not looking to Abraham Lincoln for everything or Martin Luther King for everything. But, you know, when we keep that in mind, I think that's a great way to start the conversation about fostering care. And that used to be called uh, studying the lives of the saints. That's right. That's and, right. And, and it, was a, it was always a mixed bag. That's right. I mean, the church always said these, these are human beings and they have, they have vices too. That's right. Yep. yep. So, I mean, from a, a traditional, say, say, Christian perspective, there was only one human being who didn't have any vices. Right. right? Um, so uh, everyone else, even the most admirable people in the, in the history of Christianity, Paul, Peter... Uh, all down the line, um, including the contemporary saints, were were uh, were sinners, did a number of wrong actions, and could not be treated as uh, perfect exemplars. Right. So, and that should be acknowledged and accepted. And in, in, in doing so, that makes them more human. Right. They're not right. It makes it easier to emulate their good right. qualities. That's right. So, it's it, and the, the empirical research backs this up. If you have really distance and unrelatable exemplars, that's going to have much less of an impact in fostering character in, in a child or in an individual. And you call this, uh, I think, uh, taking small steps. Right, that's right. So, yeah, uh, there's, uh, there's character change is not something that happens overnight. You can't just flip a switch and go from being dishonest to honest. Uh, you can't look to an exemplar and make yourself look just like that example, that is ex exemplar the next day. What we have to hope for is that we'll make slow, gradual progress in the right direction so that over time, and time might mean a year or five years or 10 years or 20 years, we are gradually getting our characters to the point where they better exemplify themselves the virtues we're trying to emulate. You know, I can't help but think that the, the very way that you put this project 
uh, it sounds like in some sense the universe is on the side of this project and um, uh, sort of demonstrating Dr. King's faith that the arc of the moral universe really does bend toward justice because you, you, you clearly believe that it will be easier to move in a positive direction than a negative one. I mean, that you really can move in a positive direction. Yeah, I, I certainly believe the second thing, that uh, we can move in a positive direction. Why? Because I've seen the people do it. So how do I know whether something can be done if someone actually does it? And we've seen people throughout history move in a positive direction, shape their characters, transform their characters from vice to virtue. Uh, you know, and I, it's, if I didn't believe that, uh, that would, I would lose a lot of hope. Right. Um, now, I have to, Michael Shermer, who was earlier on the podcast, he would, he would certainly want me to, uh, to suggest that in the very long run, uh, that human character had, tr had changed in the positive way tremendously. That there's much less tribalism, nationalism, uh, cruelty in human society than there was thousands of years ago. Yeah, I, I'll take him as word. I'm, he probably knows more about this than I do. I'm somewhat uh, skeptical about those claims until I see the measures that are being used uh, to make them. So what measures are we using to measure the extent of cruelty 10,000 years ago and then comparing it to the cruelty that we find in the 20th century? Uh, so until I, I get a really clear sense of how that's being measured, I'm going to be a little bit more agnostic about that claim. I mean shorten the time horizon. Take 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century. People make all kinds of claims about how much we've improved and you know, shown progress just in that time horizon. You know, the, the Enlightenment has moved us along in the 20th century. Now we see the fruits of the Enlightenment. Well, in the 20th century, I see two world wars. I see Nazi Germany. I see Six million Jews killed. I see uh, Stalinism resulting in the death of estimated 20 to 40 million people. I see that what Mao did, uh, 40 million on some estimates, people killed in the process. Now, from a numbers perspective, the numbers of lives taken in you know, through acts of, of awful cruelty seems like it's higher than it's ever been in the past. Uh, so on one measure, I'm not clear seeing progress. But surely that can't be the only measure. After all, the population's larger too. So uh, I need to get clear on how we're measuring this before I can really uh, come down on one side. Right. And, and I, I have a feeling that in the end, it probably is a faith claim. You know, probably um, uh, it, as it was for Dr. King, mm -hmm. who said, uh, who clearly believed that the universe was on, on, on the side of justice in the long run, bending toward justice, you know, we had to do our part, all the rest of that. But, um, you know, if you said to Dr. King, can you prove that? Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm sure that Dr. King would say it's really, it's not a matter of proof, ultimately. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. Uh, so part of this will intersect with the, the supernatural claim, so in his, in his, his own personal faith. And he probably would say he can't prove that either. Uh, so I guess there would be a faith in God and there would be a faith in humanity. 
So maybe we can keep those two separate. So uh, a faith that God in the long run will set everything straight, uh, whether in this life or the next life. But then there would be a separate faith claim here about human beings in the long run improving as human beings. That seems to be what uh, Dr. Shermer uh, believes about what's happened in the past. Maybe he thinks that's also true in the, in the future as well. Uh, and when it comes to um, Dr. Canning, he seems to hold that faith claim about humanity as well. In my case, if it's just a secular perspective and we're just talking about the future uh, of human beings getting better, I'm, I guess I have less Less Face. confidence. Less confidence than well, you, me, And, and there's also the possibility that um, when, when we say that the universe uh, bends toward justice, that might even be what we mean by God. You know, if you think of God, the God behind God, uh, not, the, not the supernatural being, but the, the, the structures that that supernatural being has put in place, mm-hmm. those structures themselves uh, may testify to an, a normative undergirding of reality. <clears throat> Great. So... That fits very nicely with my way of thinking about the universe in terms of there being objective morality. And that more, more generally, objective normative structures to reality that are just as real in one sense as the physical world we inhabit. And so those objective normative structures decide what is just and what's not just, what's uh, right and what's wrong, what's virtuous and what's not virtuous. And so they provide us with this external standard against which we can assess the progress of humanity, right? Or the regress of humanity or the progression of humanity. Now, in order to actually impact the world, though, how would that work? Um, would, it, would they actually cause the world in a way in which a supernatural being would cause things to happen in the world? Would they actually bring about change in the world as opposed to just being principles that hover over the world, so to speak, and govern the world, but don't actually bring about change in the world? Right. Now, I'm thinking of the book Ishmael. I don't know if you know it, Daniel Quinn's book from 1992. Um, it, it's, a, it's a fable about this uh, gorilla who's teaching a student about the history of human beings and the future. Um, but um, he, he talks about this fact-value dichotomy. And um, he uses as an example uh, the law of gravity. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, because the, the student says, well, you can violate all the, law, all the laws of morality. There's no one way to live. And um, the Ishmael, the teacher, says, well, yeah, you can violate these laws. Uh, but there are consequences when you do so. So the person who jumps off a building is not defying the law of gravity. That person is subject to the law of gravity. And, and similarly, if you, if you behave in bad ways and your society behaves in bad ways, you're not violating the moral laws, you're subject to them. And you will pay the price. Right, that makes a lot of sense to me. Here's a, a, a different perspective, a skeptical perspective back to that, just for the sake of, of discussion. Um, people, when they talk about objective morality, they make that analogy to the laws of nature. The laws of nature exist out there as well. We did not create them in the first place. We'd have no control of them. We can't change the laws of nature as much as we might want to, and I would not recommend trying to do it, right? Uh, The consequences could be 
quite bad if you try and violate the laws of nature. In a case of morality, you, someone says, well, yeah, you can violate the, the laws of morality, therefore uh, they're not objective. And you say, well, yeah, in a sense we have free will and we can go against the law of morality, but there will be consequences too. Now, are there bound to be consequences? There might be consequences for societies at large. But what about this example that uh, philosophers sometimes talk about? Uh, the person, say, let's, let's make it an, a Nazi example. A person who was a Nazi uh, during World War II does not get captured by the Allied forces, goes off to Chile. And dies in his bed. Dies in his bed, having seemed to have lived a very comfortable, you know, kind of uh, life not filled with lots of guilt. Let's you know, stipulate a few other things. Not filled in the rack with guilt about what he'd done in the past. He kind of lived a comfortable, lavish lifestyle in Chile died with no remorse or guilt. In that particular instance, now I agree in a, at a societal level it's different, it's, it, but at, in that particular instance, is that person going to be experiencing the consequences of violating the moral law? Well, perhaps if there's a supernatural being and there is an afterlife and et cetera, et cetera, but if there is not, if there's just an objective moral law, there's no afterlife and this person has died, it's not clear to me that that person will ever experience justice. Right, no, and, and it may very well be that that, that person will not. Um, you know, at that point you have to say, but, but he, that person could not have experienced a fully flourishing human life because he, every time he, that person was drawn to take the larger view, mm -hmm. he would have to consciously or unconsciously cut, cut that off, right. knowing what he had done. Right. So here we have to really accept the distinction between subjective flourishing and objective flourishing. Because that, if you ask that person, that person might say, I lived a great life. You know, were you happy? This person says, yes, I was really happy. You know, was there anything that you would have done differently? And the person says, no, I wouldn't have done anything differently. So subjectively, the person would have answered all the happiness questions with a thumbs up or a check of the box. But if we say there is a difference between what you think is a happy life and what, in fact, is a happy life, objectively speaking, then yes, we could say that person did not objectively experience the best life there is available. Right. And this is Woody, Woody Allen's question, although I don't know if I can cite Woody Allen anymore, um, in, the, in the movie Crimes and Misdemeanors, in which he, he asked this very question, and, and at the end, the murderer seems to be fine, uh, but we're left with the question, is the murderer really fine? Right. So it's a famous scene, uh, giving it away for those who haven't seen the movie, but it's, I, I really commend the movie, and I show it every semester in my oh, oh, really? introduction to philosophy class. Uh, it serves real, to really uh, perfectly explain two topics we covered. One is objective morality versus relative morality, and the other is self-interest versus being concerned with something larger than yourself. So it looks like at the end of the movie, uh, the person who cares about an objective morality and a person who cares about altruism and helping others is miserable. That's the Woody Allen character in the movie. He's, he's kind of drinking himself into a stupor in the coat room at this party. And then the person on the other hand, uh, Judah, who... Uh, doesn't believe in objective morality and is out just to benefit himself and promote his own self-interest. Looks like he got away with his crime, was not captured by the police, and is uh, kind of 
sailing away in the sunset with his wife to plan their daughter's wedding. So Woody Allen's movie gives you that um, kind of dis- you know, discouraging perspective at the end, except for the fact that the very last scene in the movie is not the coat room scene. It's Rabbi Ben, who believes in objective morality as an altruist, dancing with his daughter at his daughter's wedding. And they're the image of perfect happiness and tranquility. That's the image that you're left with. So I think Woody Allen's lesson is ambiguous at the end of the movie, whether who's supposed to be the winner and who isn't. But we know that the murderer's relation with his family is stiff, and the rabbi's relationship is not. That's right. That's right. So even then, um, you can perhaps discern some ways in which uh, Judah, the murderer, is not living the best life of all, and that the rabbi is. I um, I personally think that's the correct view as well, that there's a subjective notion of happiness and there's an objective notion of happiness, and that the Nazi or the Judah the murderer is not living the best life, even though they might think they are. It's just very hard to convince someone on the other side that that's true. Right. Well, Christian, this has just been fascinating. And I very much appreciate this conversation to have a chance to talk with you about these things. Thank you so much, and I really enjoyed our time together. Today's Bends Towards Justice podcast was written by Bruce Ledowitz. The executive producer is Jennifer Rignani, and technical lead is Jason Melito. For more information about our series, email us at ledowitz at duq.edu. To learn more about the August Wilson African American Cultural Center, visit AACC-AWC.org.